0: Welcome to the podcast. This week I sat down and chatted with Dr. Todd Steggles. Now, Toddy, I've worked with Todd for a fair few years. Uh, Todd is an amazing character. Um, he has a passion for teaching. Um, he loves working in ED. He actually got me fired up um, to want to pursue um, more educational stuff. Um, I'd run with Todd pretty regularly and he'd be talking about the you know, 10 features of pericarditis or something. <laughs> and... Um, he is very well liked by his colleagues in emergency. Um, if you know Todd, you know he loves a bit of house music um, and he loves triathlons. Um, and he is a very um, awesome human. It's taken me ages to get him on here. Um, to be really honest with you, Todd, he didn't really want to jump behind the mic. Now, at the end of the podcast, um, it's free reign. Todd, he doesn't even know I'm actually filming um, and recording. I obviously got his permission to put this up here. Um, but Toddy really gives us insight into his character, um, and I really um, have found this super honest for him to give us his feedback, and also just shows you how real and raw it is. Um, so often people come on and talk, and you know we want to present the best part of ourselves when we come on a podcast and talk. Um, but this is just great, Todd, just talking about um, you know why he likes medicine and why he likes talking to patients, um, and what things in medicine he finds easy and hard. Um, we're going to run through a bit of a structure for this podcast episode. We're basically running through a normal chest x-ray, um, four abnormal chest x-rays and how to interpret them, them being consolidation, a pleural effusion, pulmonary edema and pneumothorax. And then we're going to leave a little bit where Toddy's going to talk a bit about his um, your why he likes med. Let's crack into it. You're on. Great. Um, cool. Welcome, Toddy. We're going to um, get into some chest x-rays for yep. everyone out there. Hello. Hey. Um, and... We order chest X-rays in the ED quite commonly, Um, and we're gonna go through some pathologies on chest X-rays. Absolutely. The first thing we're gonna look at is um, why do we order chest X-rays? So
1: in ED, we generally order chest X-rays to look for lung pathology. We'll see a lot of routine chest X-rays ordered, Mm -hmm. but on the whole, we wanna be ordering chest X-rays in those people we expect to see some sort of pathology. So the type of people we're gonna see is people with dyspnea of any cause, people who we think might have consolidation, pleural effusion, pulmonary edema, Pneumothorax, yep. or people who've had chest wall traumas. Cool,
0: awesome. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we're going to follow an approach that you kind of look at when you're looking at chest x rays. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we always grab a clinical history from a patient, which is important. Yep. Um, you do tell people that when you're assessing patients, or?
1: So the clinical history is really important, particularly in the order in the chest x ray. Uh, portion it's really important that we put the adequate clinical information in for the radiologist to give us a good report Mm -hmm. and that adequate information includes not just why the patient's here and what we can what we found on exam uh, but also any relevant history so have they got a history of cancer particularly Mm -hmm. lung cancer or even other cancers because that will change what they're looking for and the possible uh, pathologies. Cool. Uh, we need to tell them what the specific findings are, so which, which zone of the lung can we hear abnormal findings and what mm. do we expect to see? So the question might be query pulmonary edema. it might be query consolidation, yeah. and that really guides the radiology report.
0: Cool, thank you. Now you're going to get into um, what you look at when you're looking at an image, your chest x-ray. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which you're going to run through.
1: So we've got to look at it in a structured fashion, and yeah. that structured fashion begins with checking we're looking at the right image. So cool. uh, this is de-identified. Yep. But upon the top right of this image, we would normally see... The patient's details so we want to check we're looking which patient has this been taken on which date has this been taken on and then it's also going to tell us which type of image this has been taken on that's really important so broadly speaking we've got two types of uh, chest x-rays that, that have this appearance and that's those that are done in the check the radiology department are done pa so from the back um, and those that are done in the ed department as a mobile chest x-ray are done from the pack from the front so that's ap view and that's just important because of the Diameters of the structures that we see will be slightly different if we according to each one, and we'll yep. come to that a little later.
0: And that's normally um, identified on an X-ray PA or AP. Yeah,
1: that's cool. normally identified. Yeah. Right. And each of them has this appearance. So you're going to see the two lungs, left and right, and the heart. Cool. Now, um, once we've once we checked it's the right patient and the right date, uh, next we're going to look at the image itself, and we're going to think about um, the adequacy of this image. So, yeah. firstly, the adequacy has to look, include all of the lungs. So you have to see from the apices all the way down to the cardi- the costophrenic yep. angles. Uh, the next adequacy is, is it well penetrated? So so penetrated means has the, has the x-ray beams gone through enough? And the way we look at that is look at this central mediastinum where the heart is mm-hmm. and check can we still see the outline of the vertebral bodies? If cool. we can't see the outline of the vertebral bodies, which isn't uncommon, it's a slightly underpenetrated film. And typical reasons why we might see this are... Uh, X-rays which are done as a mobile X-ray in the emergency are a bit harder for the radiographers to get adequate penetration and people who have larger body habitus again it's a bit harder for them to get adequate penetration. It just uh, changes your interpretation of the lung fields. Okay. Um, next following penetration we're going to look how is, is, it, is the patient well centred for yep. the X-ray and the way we look at that is come up to the sternoclavicular joints here yep. and we're going to look do they look symmetrical? is the gap between each clavicle and the sternum on each side, is it symmetrical on this one? It's maybe ever so slightly wider on the left than it is on the right. The reason that's important is because if the patient's rotated, uh, the structures on the side that's closer to the x-ray beam are going to be magnified okay. and more prominent and therefore a- appear different than they would do
0: so if that's more on the left side would the heart look bigger or would the heart look more of like a small yes if
1: the, if the left side was closer to the to the x-ray beam yep. if it's rotated left forwards yep. you'll have a larger gap here yep. and shortening here cool. that will t- and then what you'll see in the structures is the actual hilum will look a lot more prominent yep. and that could be mis- misinterpreted as pathology the heart itself shouldn't change, change specifically
0: cool. Thanks, Cody.
1: Um, Once you've uh, looked at that, then the next step is just to check, has the patient actually taken an adequate inspiration? That's not always possible in REd patients. Mm -hmm. They're often sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't hold their breath for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. They may may have cognitive impairment, and they may not be able to follow that. But ideally, uh, this is actually a PA departmental Mm -hmm. film. So we're going to look down. We're going to count the posterior ribs. And by posterior, I mean where they come off the vertebrae. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to count down at least 10 ribs to show that their patients got an adequate um, inspiration. Yeah. As I say, in ED, we're not always getting the perfect films for lots of reasons, yeah. but it's good to at least acknowledge and understand what kind of film we're looking at.
0: Yep. Cool. So you normally follow a mnemonic when you're looking at uh, chest X-rays, and it's a really helpful mnemonic so that people can follow it. How do you, what do you do normally, Toddie, when yeah. you're looking at a chest So once X-ray? we've got
1: all the uh, other things out of the way, then the the best mnemonic I've used in the past is the ABCD mnemonic. Yep. We love uh, ABCD and everything else. Everyth- everything in ED is ABCD. <laughs> so the, the A for, uh, in this is uh, stands for airways. Yep. And the, the airways start here in the trachea, come down to the carina, which is the division of the carina into the left uh, and right main bronchi. So the left main bronchus is coming down here, and the right main bronchus is coming down here. And then it continues out to the rest of the lungs. And we're going to look at the lung markings all the way through down to here. And once you've done the airways, next we're going to look at bones. It's very easy to forget to look at the bones on a chest x-ray because, largely speaking, we're ordering chest x-rays for non-traumatic reasons, but there may be some relevant information on there. So look at all the bones that are present, vertebrae, clavicles, ribs, and then the shoulder joints and scapulae. Uh, Next, you're going to look at the C for cardiac. So you're going to look at the cardiac contour. So this includes not just the heart itself, but also the aortic knuckle and then we're gonna look at the outline of the heart and look if it looks globally normal. Mm-hmm. And then there are some ratios we can work out. Uh, so we want if we think the heart may be enlarged, we might actually measure those ratios. So the ratios are the transverse diameter of the heart versus the diameter at the same level in this mid-mediastinum of the actual front of the chest itself. Now in a PA film, that ratio should be no more than 50%, meaning the heart should be less than 50% of the total width of the chest. Okay. Whereas if it was an AP film, i.e. done in emergency as a mobile film, that, that number can go up to 60%. Quite. Anything above those, to the, those cut-offs is considered cardiomegaly. Okay. And there's a long list of causes of, of, okay. uh, of an yeah. enlarged heart. Yeah. Uh, following C, we come to D, and D in this context is diaphragm. Yeah. So we're gonna look at the diaphragm, both left and right, and we want to see, that includes looking to the costophrenic angles following the diaphragm, and remembering to look all the way behind the heart and to see, does it come into the cardiophrenic angle here? Mm-hmm. And then on the left, we're gonna do the same. We're gonna follow it in. On this film, you can actually see the, the diaphragm is actually a little bit unfolded. So you oh, can, yeah. but you can still see a clear diaphragm all the way into the cardiophrenic angle. Mm-hmm. At, now, the right side is often elevated compared to the left side because yep. the liver sits on this side and just pushes this side up.
0: Yep. If it's high, is that called like a hemi hemidiaphrag- diaphragm, if, so
1: if it's if, pushed up? Yeah, if you if it was pushed up more than you thought was uh, normal, yep. then you would say there's an elevated hemi diaphragm on yep. the side of, of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things you might look for on, let's look at this, this left looks more normal. So this is a nice smooth contour. Yep. You can see peaking and then you say that, that can be referred to as tenting of the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. You can see blunting of the di- of the costophrenic angles, mm-hmm. and that's always worth commenting on. And that can be caused by things like atelectasis, consolidation, or a pleural effusion. Yep. Or you might see obscuring of the diaphragm behind the heart and that's so you'd say there's blunting of the diaphragm or effacement of the diaphragm in those
0: areas i love how simple and easy todd makes it to remember chest x-rays um i really encourage you if you're in you know paramedicine if you're a student if you're a nurse if you're a doctor um to follow that same approach when you get a chest x-ray up maybe don't read the report first maybe try and interpret it following that um the airways following um the bones following um, you know the cardiac um, silhouette following the diaphragm and also following the simple things at the start making sure you have got your image you know how well centered is the patient all of those really key um, features I guess in relation to chest x-rays um, a lot of people want to know about radiation and how much radiation is in a chest x-ray as well um, I'll put up a post on Insta you can check it out as well um, but generally an adult dose for chest x-rays is about 0.02 um, which equates to about five days of background radiation Alright, Toddy, you're going to run us through, we're going to run through four different pathologies. The first one we're going to run through um, is consolidation. Yes. So when you, um, I've got a clinical history of a patient, and you've listened to their story, and then you pull up, this is their chest x-ray. Yes. Um, What do we notice on this chest x-ray, Toddy? What do you notice first on this chest x-ray? So once we've
1: gone through our usual checks that we spoke about earlier, the the thing that jumps out on this chest x-ray is two things. Firstly, they've got some leads on there, which shows they're on some sort of monitoring. But in terms of our ABCD mnemonic, uh, as we come to A we we immediately see in the right middle to upper zone we've got this patchy change throughout here and extending from the hilum and then really pronounced in this region. So this is an example of consolidation. Uh, consolidation can represent a number of different pathological processes by far the most common one we're going to see in the emergency department is an infection so this is uh, a type of pneumonia other differential diagnoses could this could be some fluid or it could be uh, blood Mm -hmm. but for our purposes the more common one is going to be an infection the best way to think about uh, looking at the the lung fields is to divide them up into zones so uh, the upper, middle, and lower zones. Now within each of one of those, you've got the lobes of the lungs, but they overlap each other, and there are, there are specific patterns that tell us about which lobe is involved, but for the purposes of interpretation, it's best to think about it in zones. So this, the way I've described this one is this patchy consolidation within the right middle zone. Uh, there's also some streaky changes in the right lower zone as well. So this is a very good example of consolidation.
0: Cool, thanks Toddy. And I guess for everyone out there in relation to pneumonia, there's all different types of pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia, you know, ventilation-required pneumonia, aspiration-required um, pneumonia. Um, there's heaps of different ones out there. Things to just remember is that generally strep um, is the most common organism that we see in pneumonia. Um, there's always clinical features with your patient, so things like cough, fever, shortness of breath, um, pleuritic-sounding chest pain, which we all know about. Tachypnea, hypoxia, respiratory distress, distress, crackles when we investigate and listen to them as well. um, It's something that we hear. I guess things that we need to be mindful of is risk factors for pneumonia. So the elderly are a big one. um, Smoking, um, immunosuppressed people, people that have got genetic problems as well. Um, Alcohol abuse can be a common one as well. Um, Comorbidities, as I said before, um, can also be common. People that have had like you know COPD or smoking nursing home residents as well can be prone to pneumonia. Um, Also think about other things like poor dental hygiene, um, you know, bird exposures, um, animal exposures, um, animal, farm animals as well. Um, Also think about other things like TB, um, travel overseas at the moment, that's not a big one, but yeah, traveling overseas as well. Um, And I guess for us as clinicians, we need to risk stratify these patients Um, And there's also different pneumonia severity scores that can be used. For us, it's just important that we identify um, what type of um, antibiotics our patient might need, going through our ABCDs, um, in terms of management of our patient, um, making sure that we look at our patient's allergy status, and making sure that we um, engage other teams if our patient needs um, other help. Um, Good example, they might need intensive care support um, for being hypoxic, Um, they may need um, they may have confusion and they may need um, an, an aged care team as well to follow up. Um, so it's really important and maybe they need ID um, input as well. Um, so it's really important that we just sort of holistically look at our patient, uh, not just look at an x-ray as well. So Todd, we're going to talk about another pathology. Um, if you worked in ED, you would have probably um, heard of pulmonary edema and that's something we're going to look at. Um, these patients typically present differently on, the, on a range of spectrums. Um, I know from a nursing perspective, sometimes we see these guys come in at the good old 7 a.m. special. Yep. Um, so they can't breathe. What are some of the typical um, clinical features you notice before you look at a checksum so with someone with APO? Or we just pulmonary edema? Yeah, so as you
1: say, the, the clinical spectrum's really broad, and we'll get the people coming in with just reduced exercise tolerance and breathlessness on lying flat, and they'll, they may report ankle swelling, or you may find pitting edema in the ankles. Uh, and it ranges all the way through to people who actually wake up in ex- in extreme respiratory distress in the middle of the night and they come in and crash in crashing pulmonary edema uh, now the other clinical features you might find will be things like a res- an increased respiratory rate mm-hmm. they're going to have a uh, potentially low oxygen saturations and then when you listen to the chest you're going to hear crepitations um, so in the mild variants you're going to hear crepitations particularly in the lower zones first mm-hmm. whereas in those more severe spectrum you might hear crepitations throughout the entire lung fields
0: yep. And they always seem to be oh, in my, on, the, on the bigger spectrum hypertensive. Yeah, absolutely. Cardiac? So when
1: when the patients come in with a, a crashing acute pulmonary edema, yep. uh, classically it always happens in the middle of the night. They yep. wake up with this syndrome. Yep. The the patient wakes up in extreme respiratory distress, and that uh, that precipitates a massive adrenergic response. And as a result, they end up tachycardic and very hypertensive. Yep. Uh, as as a result of that the hypertension increases the afterload on the heart so sometimes the, the management of that particular condition in, includes gtn either in a patch form or even in the more extreme an infusion yeah so when we come to look at the x ray of pulmonary edema this is a good example so we're going to first of all we will get back to our abcd approach yep. but when we're looking at the airways some of the things we might be looking for uh, I'll start with the example the features we can see on this particular x ray and then talk about some of the others so with pulmonary edema, we're looking for things like upper lobe diversion, which is diversion of the blood into the upper lobe veins, which you can see particularly on the left here. Uh, the really obvious thing we can see here is interstitial alveolar edema. So this is this patchy consolidation, and they typically they describe it as a bat wing distribution. So you've got this really pronounced patchy consolidation through here. If you were to look closely, in this section you might even see some outlines of some little uh, airways which are called uh, bronchograms
0: hmm.
1: um, moving out more laterally you can see these little fluid lines coming from the lateral these are called curly b lines and that's intercept interceptal fluid that's accumulating
0: can you see them in ultrasound b lines?
1: yeah b lines are something you can see on ultrasound cool. absolutely yep. yeah if you yep. do to a lung ultrasound yeah now um, some other things we might look for as evidence of uh, pulmonary edema would be fluid sitting in the horizontal fissure on the right side, which would just be highlighted like a, a white line, like we see with the curly B lines. Mm-hmm. But so starting from the outside and just coming down in this sort of distribution. Interestingly, we can't actually see it in this X-ray. Mm. Uh, other features we might see would be pleural effusions. So we're going to look down to the costophrenic angles to see if there's blunting. But in this particular case, there's not pleural effusions. Mm. Now, in this particular patient, there's a couple of things which alerts to the fact they've got pre-existing heart disease. Now, the most obvious thing is they've got an AICD. (laughs) Pretty big. Yeah, we know that's an AICD, not just a pacemaker, because it's got this insulation wire here. And uh, we spoke about the the cardiothoracic ratio earlier. It's a bit hard to be certain because we don't know exactly. But this is seated portable, so we know this is AP. So the ratio we're looking at is 60%. The actual right heart border is a little bit obscured, mm. but even allowing for that, it's probably more than sixty percent. So there's yep. probably some pre-existing cardiomegaly as well. Now this is, I'd say this is at the more extreme end of the spectrum of pulmonary edema, and this is probably quite consistent with the acute pulmonary edema we see in the middle of the night. And the reason I say that is, they don't have the other, there's no pleural effusion, mm. there's no fluid accumulated in the right horizontal fissure. Which if it was a more chronic uh, presentation these are the things you would expect to see
0: mm, awesome thanks toddy all right toddy um uh, mate we're going to run through another pathology that we can see on a chest x-ray which is a pleural effusion yeah absolutely um run us through what you notice toddy um so
1: a pleural effusion is an accumulation of fluid in the space between the two pleura so there's a pleura on the on the lungs themselves and a pleura on the inside of the chest wall and that they they should have a tiny amount of fluid in there but they and they slide over each other as the lungs inflate and deflate now, in some some pathologies, you'll get a large accumulation of fluid in that space, which ultimately can lead to the patient feeling breathless. And when we examine the patient, what we expect to find on the side of the pleural effusion is uh, fluid sinks to the bottom, as you imagine. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to find in the area where there's fluid, when we listen, is reduced air entry. Mm-hmm. And if we percuss on that area, we're going to hear a dullness, which is often ref- uh, called stony dullness. So, compared to the other portion of the lung or the other side, which is resonant, you're going to get a real dullness to percussion. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, on the x-ray, the first thing we see is the, the pleural effusion on this particular patient is on the right-hand side. So going through our ABCD mnemonic, the, the trachea is there. But as you come down to the lungs, it cuts off very early. And as you get to D for diaphragm, the diaphragm is completely obscured. So the this portion where it's obscured uh, is very homogenous. And what I mean by that is if you think back to the consolidation where it's very patchy, this is just a, a pure white, so it's all the same thickness and that's very consistent with fluid because the fluid sits there as a homogeneous substance other things that help us be be clear that it's fluid rather than another process is you get what you call a meniscus so as it gets to the lateral edge of the chest it actually comes up like this Uh, so contrast it to the side where you can see all the way down to this nice crisp uh, costophrenic angle on this side you've got this homogeneous whiteness with a meniscus out laterally. And that's very consistent with a unilateral pleural effusion. Now the kind of things that we can, kind of pathologies that can cause pleural effusion, Mm. commonly we see pleural effusion, uh, small bilateral pleural effusions in heart failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, These sorts of larger pleural effusions you might see in things like malignancy, uh, even in infectious processes like pneumonia
0: or tuberculosis. How do you, because it's fluid, how do you determine whether or not you think that's pleural fluid or could you examine that could be blood if it was in the context of trauma, would you examine that could be... Yeah, that's a, that's
1: a good question. So uh, in you, you put it as to be context-specific. Yep. From uh, Just on the x-ray itself, there's actually no way to determine whether this, this is uh, serous fluid or blood. Yep. So you would put it into the clinical context. If this was an atraumatic uh, slow, slow accumulation of dyspnea, you would mm-hmm. just assume that's much more likely to be serous fluid and pleural yep. effusion. Uh, to be determined what the pathology is, whereas if this was an acute presentation following trauma, this would be considered blood until proven otherwise. So this would be considered a haemothorax until proven otherwise. Cool. And in the case of trauma, well, in the case of any sort of unilateral pleural effusion, the 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 threshold to do a CT of the chest to determine what the underlying pathology of is quite low, okay. because this could be this could be driven by an underlying malignancy. And when there's fluid like this and we don't have a cause, the diagnosis performed by doing the pleural uh, aspiration by putting a needle in there to take some fluid for analysis mm-hmm. and we really want to know what's underneath there before yeah. we put that
0: needle in there awesome thanks Toddy that's awesome I guess causes of pleural effusion as Todd mentioned before um, could be malignancies pulmonary infarcts post-op trauma um, it could be exudate related so empyemas or pancreatitis um, it could also be related to um, heart failure liver failure or fluid overload um, and also could relate to nephrotic syndromes as well losing protein um, it's important in relation to pleural taps, which we've probably seen in ED before, um, which are generally done to remove excess pleural fluid. Um, it's important that they're obviously screened. For contraindications for doing those would be, you know, skin infections, an uncooperative patient, um, someone who has um, coagulopathy in relation to bleeding issues, um, INR stuff and platelets, um, and also an undifferentiated. So hence why Todd was talking about CTs as well, just to determine exactly the type of fluid um, as well. All right, Toddy, we're going to crank into the last pathology, which is a pneumothorax. This one always Absolutely. gets ED people excited. Yeah, for sure. Um, you examine your patient. What what types of patients can we see pneumothoraces on, if we were to...
1: So there's some people uh, have anatomical predisposition to pneumothorax, and classically we always learn it's the tall, slim, young men. Yep. And it's something to do with the anatomy of them having blebs particularly in the apices of their lungs which are out near the lateral aspect of their lung and a bleb's just instead of having lots of little alveoli those alveoli have coalesced to be one airspace and if that then ruptures you've now got a communication between the lung itself and that pleural space between the two pleura Mm -hmm. and air escapes from the lung and fills up that pleural space okay so other risk factors uh, are breath holding activities so it's not uncommon that you might see this in the bong smokers who take a big hit from the bong and then so hold their breath. Anyone bongs out there? Just yeah. Be, be aware. <laughs> uh, and then other breath-holding activities. So you you might see it in people who go diving. You yep. might see it in people who jump from a height or go down slides. So they they're just things to consider in terms of presentation. They yep. can be painful, so the patient can present with unilateral pain, which can be pleuritic, mm-hmm. or sometimes they're not painful, but they just present with some dyspnea. Yep. So in terms of what are we going to find when we listen mm-hmm. or when we examine the patient? So on this patient, we've got a nice one-sided pneumothorax. So on this, on the unaffected side, you're going to hear normal breath sounds. On the affected side, you're going to hear reduced breath sounds. But unlike the consolidation, uh, sorry, the pleural effusion, when you percuss this area, because there's, it's just air with no lung tissue, it's actually going to be hyper-resonant, so louder than the unaffected side. And that gives you an idea that you, what you're dealing with is a pneumothorax rather than another pathology. Yeah. Now on the X-ray, we're going to approach it in the usual ways, in that ABCD approach. Yep. So on the A, uh, the first thing that jumps out is there's a real difference. This is a this is a severe pneumothorax with really collapsed lung. It's not always this obvious, and this this is actually the lung here, and then these lung markings are really condensed because if you think about the lung itself, it's normally filling the entire hemithorax on. But on this side, it's being condensed into this small area. So the lung markings are very condensed. And then you reach a point where there's no lung markings beyond. So this is the actual area of air within that pleural space. So beyond that area, there's no lung markings. And then you can actually find the lung edge. In a less uh, dramatic variant, the lung edge could be all the way out here. So you want to be looking really out to the apex, and down here and something we can mistake for a lung edge is the medial border of the scapula oh, yeah. which sits somewhere around here um, now other features of a pneumothorax that we can see are this air that escapes into this pleural space can also escape into the soft tissues so we might see air in the subcu- in the soft tissues so subcutaneous emphysema in this particular patient we don't see that and another feature of pneumothorax we can see is the cardiac the costophrenic angle can be very pushed very far down and that's called the deep sulcus sign now another feature of pneumothorax that we always need to look for and this particular chest x-ray does demonstrate is are there signs of tension so tension pneumothorax arises when the air escaping from the lung is not is not going anywhere so with each subsequent breath that you draw in more air is being pushed into this area and that means this area is getting larger and larger and it actually pushes the lung to be smaller and smaller and pushes the entire mediastinum across into the other side of the chest so what we're seeing here is the trachea itself is pushed away from the side of the pathology so it's deviated away likewise the mediastinum and the heart are both pushed onto the other side mm. so these are signs of something called tension pneumothorax so a tension pneumothorax uh, the radiographic features are these that we just described. Everything's pushed away from the side of the pathology. The clinical syndrome is that that increase in pressure puts pressure on the superior and inferior vena cavae and reduces venous return to the right side of the heart, and that causes a type of shock called obstructive shock. So, if this person were to be shocked, if they had a low blood pressure, high heart rate, the first thing, as a matter of medical emergency, would be to decompress this chest by putting a needle or a chest drain in.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome
1: now some young people can actually have this chest x-ray appearance but tolerate it very well because they've they can they can tolerate it really well on just one lung and they've not yet reached the point where it's compromising blood return to the heart so in a young healthy person they may be walking around with this type of x-ray yep. even though the x-ray itself looks very dramatic
0: okay. and in smaller pneumothoraces uh, that aren't this dramatic they can either be a conservative approach if they're small like a small to then putting a drain in, is that dependent on? Yeah, absolutely, so
1: in the last few years, we've really shifted away from putting chest drains in all of these patients to considering whether chest drain's the best approach, and there's good evidence that in people with small to moderate uh, first-time spontaneous pneumothorax, if it's below a certain level and there's a formula to work out how large the pneumothorax is, and the patient's tolerating it well, you can actually monitor them Do a serial X-ray in four to six hours to check it's not rapidly evolving and then arrange follow up with a respiratory physician over the the coming days and weeks to check that the patient's well. Uh, Some downsides to that approach are there is a slower reaccumulation of the lungs volume and that may uh, impact on the next time the patient can fly or do other activities, particularly diving. So some patients may elect to have the chest drain because it's a faster resolution. But there are the risks of the chest drain, not not to mention the pain of the chest drain as well.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Toddy. No worries.
1: <laughs> so good, dude. Four pathologies. So good. A B C D. Hopefully that's good enough.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, oh, you you could you could say I probably won't be able to watch it. To be honest, I'll probably look at and think. I'd. Why I you on? You know, I, mean, I just don't like the sound of my own voice. I'm not really someone who wants to be on these things. Because so The other side, for ED is a lot less different. Like once we come out of the side, is. It's, you can take control of your own career a bit more, you get the tri- the te- so like we discussed, and you can you can decline shifts and start to make it work around your family That's life it. and everything to some extent. But yeah, ultimately, your day-to-day work is very much the same as it was as a senior registrar, isn't it? Like, you, yeah. you go in, you're on the floor, you're seeing patients. Um, you're pro- you're pro- well, in my opinion, I think an ED physician is one of the most approachable has specialties. To it's the flattest hierarchy. The flattest hierarchy. Yeah. In terms of, like you know, the, I, I speak to the Student nurses, it's like I speak to everyone else. I don't, you know, I want yeah. everyone to be able to come and approach me and stuff. Because otherwise, if I'm a dickhead and people think, oh, I'm not going to go and talk to Todd because he's just going to give me a hard time. But I am worried about this person. Yeah. I'm going to find out an hour later and two hours later and they're going to be really sick.
0: But have you always been like that?
1: Have you always been I think same? I am anyway because I don't come from a background of, like, I'm from the north of England, everyone's just... It's like Australia, you know. Australia's a very mm. nice society in so much as I could go and meet someone in the street, they could be a millionaire. Yeah. They won't treat me any differently or think I'm be- beneath them because that's yeah. not the Aussie way, is it? No. And that's very much how I, I was brought up where we are as well. You treat everyone nicely, the waiters, the cleaners, doesn't matter who they are. I say to the juniors, there's there's no one who works in this department that can't teach you something and yeah. no, or, or me something. The cleaners, the porters, they all know stuff about the way things run that I don't know. Where's the oxygen cylinders? How do you put the oxygen cylinders on if they're not mm. working? They all can tell you something. So you gotta treat them all with the same respect, basically. Whereas in surgery, it's very much like, do this, do that. Yeah. No, one, no one questions it. Even if they think, really? They just do it because
0: it's like a pyramid and they're right at the top. Mm, but I find you don't do it to get like a um, something out. You know some people you can tell they're trying to be nice to get something for you to do something for them? Oh, yeah, yeah. But you, I feel like when you're being yourself you're the same the whole I, way through you're I'm, not normally trying to. The, I'm normally
1: the same outside of work as well in terms of the way I just yeah. interact with people I don't, I've, I've, that's something I've always found easy about medicine and I've found it quite interesting I've laughed with Kate about it and say we do all entire training courses and I, I just find that's by far and away the easiest part of medicine talking to people just be nice to them be polite just talk to them normally mm-hmm. you know I, I didn't I, I don't think that communication skill courses are of use yes I've learned. Particularly I've learnt about how different people think differently, react differently, express themselves differently, and I have to be more aware of that. But in terms of... I've always found it very easy, that side of things. The communication side of things. Yeah, whereas other people, I just see the way they... Oh, you hear stories of how they broke news.
0: Yeah. And just think... But they they almost box a medical physicians into this box of wh- oh, you're very smart, but you can't communicate. Yes. Like there's almost this sense of like, oh, if you're a doctor, you're a, you're yeah. a very intelligent person, but you have no emotional or yes. social intelligence. Yes,
1: you do control your emotions a lot, and then you've also seen a lot of situations. So it's you know we see someone die. That's I don't know how many people I've seen die. So it doesn't. F- f- mm. But then it's easy to forget. Oh, there's other people in the room. That might be the first death they've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, and they also might be. They may be dealing with something at home mm. or in their history so it's good to try and remember those things because not everyone's coming out from a point of view of i'm not particularly upset by this i've seen this a hundred times mm. i'm going to move on with my day
0: it, yeah you it,
1: can't i found that uh, we've had a couple of things recently where i've not even had time to do debriefs as well though like that i've, I've always made an effort to do a debrief when there's a death or something where a cpr that ended up with a death here and we spoke about doing a debrief and didn't happen just didn't happen you, you walk it, out into back into a queue and it's like ten to be seen yeah. when oh, Todd is... can you do this Todd can you do that yeah. can you review this patient the uh, cardiology haven't seen these guys yeah whatever just a list of yeah. 20 things and then before you know it four hours has gone by yeah you
0: can't um, I love when Toddy was talking about um, his interactions with staff and that's one thing I've noticed personally is that he actually you know, good example, like he asked does someone want a coffee and he asked everybody. I mean, it seems so silly, but it's not just the people that are the doctors or the nurses, it's the the, the greater team um, and also the demands of being an emergency um, staff specialist trying to run a department. Um, you can't always stop and have time with patients and that's why the collective team is so important. I think we can learn something from Toddy on this one. I think we can be kind, you know. When you're working on your shift, are you being kind to people? Are you being inclusive of people? Are you actually taking the time just to be respectful and listen to someone? The greatest thing I learned from this, guys, was just seriously, you can learn from anyone and anything. It doesn't have to be the most senior person on your shift. It doesn't have to be the smartest person on your shift. I love how Toddy told us that. Like, fire up, guys. This is so important to know that we can learn from anyone if we just take the time to listen and ask. Um, And I love that about Todd. I thought it was also interesting listening to him talk about debriefing, um, because so often in emergency, we want to debrief, but we don't get the time to do it. Um, And Todd actually just gives us a little, um, a little excerpt here now of the first time he ever saw something traumatic um, as a junior doctor. And I was really upset. The guy was a 21-year-old guy. He died of an asthma attack at one or two in the morning.
1: And as I was walking away, his mum came in and she was being walked away by this registrar. And she was saying to him, oh, what's he done now? Like, oh. And he said, I was thinking. And no one said a word. No one even mentioned the word debrief. And mm-hmm. I was just like, all right, this is what we do. We just get on with it. And I was sitting there at the computer thinking, that was terrible. Like, I That's feel like I was really people. shook. Because I, I think I was, I would have been 15 months out of medical school. That was an RMO1 never i'd seen elderly people mm. expected deaths and no one did it and i was like wow and but yeah no debrief in that i don't know if that was the culture or if it was that particular registrar or mm. the situation i don't know but it's important to do it i think when you oh 100 you need to at least because even an elderly person who we just think oh whatever they were 90 from a nursing, and we should probably should have never even started cpr that nursing
0: student medical student
1: That might be the first time I've ever seen it. Yeah. That's what communications taught me.
0: Hey, guys, just remember this um, audio is taken from the video that me and Todd have done. It's on YouTube. If you go on YouTube, look up ED Jam interpreting chest x-rays. You're going to look at the whole video. You can actually see the images that we're talking about in relation to the chest x-rays. Make sure you check it out. Um, Make sure you follow me on um, Instagram and keep up to date with all the posts that I put up. Um, and also send me a message if you want to find out about different medical things, if you want to chat with people. If you chat with someone and really like to find out more and have them on, let me know. You guys are awesome. Have a great week. Stay safe out there, guys, um, especially with the current situation. Um, and yeah, thank you for all the work that you guys do. Thank you for listening. You're awesome. Bye. Any advice on the EDGM should not be taken over your local medical practitioner. I want to say thanks to everyone who's following me on Instagram. You can follow me at jam underscore podcast, um, where you can stay up to date with medical information um, and medical teaching. Um, thank you everyone who's following me. Um, keep sharing it with your friends, nurses, students, paramedics and doctors. Um, and yeah, thank you for everyone who does follow me. Um, I really appreciate it. Have a good day, legends. Bye.